Welcome to my Parsha class. Today we're going to talk about Parsha Shlach. In the past, when I've given Shurim on Parsha Shlach, I've focused a lot of attention on various aspects of the tragic story of the Maraglim, the spies sent by Moshe to scout out the Promised Land, all 12 of them great men, and 10 of them who proved to be a great disappointment, and whose negative reports resulted in everyone having to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. But today, I'm going to cast my attention on a short passage at the end of Parsha Shlach that describes the mitzvah of Titus. We're all very familiar with this passage, as we include it as the third paragraph of Shema, twice every day. Speak to the Jewish people and tell them that they should make for themselves titis, fringes, tassels, on the corners of their clothes. If you have a four-cornered garment, each corner requires a titis, which is four threads folded over through a hole in the garment and then knotted in a particular way to create the eight-thread titis tassel. It is an obligation that is particular to men and has two applications. There is a talis godel, which is a large shawl that we wear when we pray, and a talis cotton a rectangular piece of cloth with a hole at the centre to fit your head through. Some people wear the talis cotton under their shirt, some people wear it over their shirt, but it is worn at all times throughout the day, and some even have the custom to wear it at night. The idea behind the titis and behind wearing titis is that when you see them, you should remember that you are obligated to keep mitzvahs. And you will see them, and you will remember God's commandments. And you will not be tempted by the desires of your heart and your eyes. That's it. That's what tzitzis are about. It seems very simple, really, but of course there is so much more to it. Today, I want to share with you some ideas so that together we can gain a greater understanding of this unique mitzvah. First of all, Let's think of Titus as a kind of puzzle, a puzzle that requires not only the ability to see patterns, but also the ability to perceive a profound symbolism. Rashi reveals the puzzle right at the very heart of the mitzvah, a numerical riddle that is hidden in the word Titus and in the way they have to be made. Titus, the word in Hebrew, has a numerical value of 600 Tzadi is 90, Yud is 10, Tzadi is 90, and Yud is 10. So far, that's 200. And then Tov is 400, so the total is 600. Add to this number the eight threads and the five knots in each Tzitzis tassel, and you reach a total of 613, which, as we all know, is the precise number of mitzvahs recorded in the Torah. As taught to us by Rabbi Simloi in Gemara, Makas Davchof Gimel Amad Beis and Chofdalad Amad it's so perfect. It's so neat. The Torah says that when you see tzitzis, they should remind you of the mitzvahs. And now that we know this number trick, they will remind us of the mitzvahs. Because if you add 600, which is the word tzitzis, to 13, which is the tzitzis themselves, you have the trigger number, which will always remind you of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, 613. It's amazing, no? but here comes a spanner in the works. Toysfus rejects Rashi's arithmetic. Toysfus asks, 
How does Rashi reach 600 from the word titis when the Torah's way of spelling this word contains only one yud, tzadi yud, tzadi tov? The second yud is missing, so it's not 600, it's 590, with 10 short. It's a great question, no? And then Toysfus come up with a brilliant answer. The Torah mentions titis three times. And in one of the three times, it appears as le titis, with a lamud, which adds an extra 30 to the sum. If you split the 30 into three, which is the number of times titis is mentioned, we get back to 600 for the numerical value, and we're back in business. The thing is, while you and I can enjoy this numerology banter, and it's a lot of fun, the reality is, who is ever going to think of that when they look at titis? It's far too complicated. Surely we could have come up with a simpler way to remember the mitzvahs, if that's why we wear titis. Uh, why not one tassel with 613 strings, or, or something like that? Wouldn't that be better? Ramban asks another good question. How can we include all five knots of the titis in this calculation if the Torah only mandates the top knot? The other four are a rabbinical addition. Once again, the number is out of sync with the 613 total that we need. It goes down to 609. Here's the thing. I think that if we imagine that the number clues in Titus are what Titus is all about, then we have totally missed the point. What Rashi is teaching us is so much deeper than that. He is telling us that this one mitzvah of Titus is equal to all the other 612 mitzvahs of the Torah. The question we have to answer is this, how exactly does that work? The first thing you need to understand is that, is that the mitzvah of Titus is connected with the two other mitzvahs that we find in the parsha, rejecting idol worship and observing the Shabbos. If someone worships idols, it's as if they've rejected the entire Torah because they've repudiated God, which means you've rejected his mitzvahs. In the same way, if someone breaks Shabbos, they are denying God as the Creator, which is like rejecting the whole Torah. And Titus are also about the whole Torah. But here it gets a bit tricky, because if Titus is so crucial as a mitzvah, why is it not a constant requirement? Why aren't we mandated to wear Titus? It's only required if we have a four-cornered item of clothing. Then we need to put Titus on it. But theoretically, if we never had any clothes with four corners, we would never need to make titis and we would never see them. What's the message behind this? Peeling back the layers, we find a deeper truth. Titis is like a special outfit that connects a servant with their master. When you wear the uniform, it's an affirmation, acknowledging your commitment to accept the yoke of heaven. That's why the Torah expresses it this way, the osu lohem titis, and they shall make titis for themselves. The phraseology implies that the reminder about the mitzvahs isn't just seeing the titis, but it is also very much in the act of creating titis and knowing about titis. The mitzvah is also not about wearing titis, although wearing titis is obviously the end result. If it was only about wearing them, that would transform the mitzvah of Titus into a mindless act, just following orders. The point of Titus is the symbolism we create around the mitzvah. All of our elaborate interpretations and understandings, 
that is what makes it such a potent reminder. It's about the name. It's about how we make them. It's about the knots, both the Torah-mandated knots and the rabbinic-mandated knots. It's about the strings. It's about wearing them even though it's not mandated. Tzitzis is literally a microcosm of every aspect and facet of our commitment to God via the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. It reminds us of all the other 612. Okay, so far that was an introduction. Now I'd like to share two wonderful pieces with you from the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, one of the pieces is based on a beautiful interpretation that he heard from Rav Nochum Rabinovich, whom he considered to be his teacher and his mentor, and the other is his own brilliant creation. Rabbi Rabinovich drew attention to the unique nuances of the Tzitzis commandment. On the one hand, Chazal, as we just heard, equate the mitzvah of Tzitzis with all the other mitzvahs, highlighting its foundation, foundational role within the rich tapestry of Judaism. But on the other hand, as we also just heard, this commandment is an absolute obligation. It is possible it's not an absolute obligation. It's possible to circumvent the mitzvah by never wearing a four-cornered garment. Rambam Maimonides was acutely aware of this anomaly, which is why he wrote that while there isn't a strict obligation to buy a four-cornered garment in order to fulfill the mitzvah of tzitzis, it would be somewhat improper, he writes, for a pious person to dismiss this mitzvah, which implies that although we don't need to, we do need to, if you know what I mean, but at the same time, strictly speaking, we don't need to. Which is strange. Why isn't it an absolute obligation to wear tzitzis in the same way as it is to wear, for example, tefillin? As I mentioned right at the start, over the span of Jewish history, the mitzvah of tzitzis has evolved into two distinctly different practices. Firstly, we wear a talis godl, specifically while we are engaged in prayer, but at no other time. Secondly, we wear the talis cotton as part of our clothing, and we wear it all day. What is intriguing is that the brochus, the blessings we make for each of these two ways of doing it, is different. When we put on the talis godl, we say, Baruch HaTo Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaElam, Asher Kedushonu B'Mitzvoyso V'Tzivonu, Lehisatev Batitis. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to wrap ourselves in a garment with tzitzis on it. But for the talis cotton we say, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the mitzvah of tzitzis. It's the same mitzvah, and yet it has two divergent expressions and blessings. What is the reason behind this difference in the brachas? According to Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich, the answer lies in the different symbolism of clothing in our lives. There are clothes that we wear to project an image. Think of a king or a judge or a policeman or a fireman or a soldier. They all wear uniforms and their uniforms conceal their individuality and instead they proclaim a particular role or an official position that they hold. And you know that Hasidim also wear particular clothes to identify themselves as Hasidim. And in fact, different Hasidic groups wear different variations of Hasidic garb 
so that you can tell which Hasidus they belong to. So what happens when a person who wears a uniform changes their attire? What happens if, for example, a policeman dresses like a fireman? Or if a doctor wears a judge's attire? Or a king puts on a beggar's clothing? Or a satmachosid puts on a spodik instead of a streimel? Your public attire can actually be a misrepresentation of the individual, of who you are representing by the uniform you should be wearing. A king dressed in the garb of a beggar may go completely unnoticed, even though he's a king, while a beggar who dresses up in royal attire might receive undeserved honour. And this is what is so deceptive about uniforms. They have the capacity to mask and distort the true individual beneath them. And then there are clothes that we wear that are not a uniform. They don't identify us as part of any group or to a particular job or special role. Those clothes are the attire that is the truest reflection of our individual persona, of who we are. And there's even a next level, the clothes that we wear that we are most comfortable in. No, no one sees them on when we wear them, but ourselves. Maybe our wives, our children, our parents. And that's what the two different types of titis represent. The two forms of titis, according to Rabbi Rabinovich, mirror these two different dimensions of dress. The talis that we wear during prayer, during davening, is like a public uniform. It represents our role as a Jew who is part of the entire Jewish community in conversation with Hashem, with God. It removes our individuality and connects us to what the uniform represents. We wrap ourselves in this symbolic garment, and we subsume our individuality to stand as a part of the Jewish people so that we can present a collective identity to God. In contrast, the talis cotton titis that we wear throughout the day signifies our intimate and personal faith. This isn't about public performance. It's about our individual commitment to God and his mitzvahs. It's about embracing our Jewish duties out of free will, not compulsion. It's not a uniform. It's what we wear in private, at home, for ourselves. It is an intimate expression of faith that isn't for public display. It's our personal testament to God's word resonating within our soul. In this way, the tzitzis symbolize the duality of our Jewish faith. On one hand, we have the public practices, our communal celebrations, observances, and traditions shared with fellow Jews across the world and through the ages. That's the talis godel, the shawl, the outward expression of our faith. On the other hand, we have our inner faith, our personal conversations with God, our individual hopes, fears, and dreams shared only with him. This internal discourse, the revelation of our heart to him, is not for public consumption. Like the talis cotton, it remains concealed, but it is no less a real facet of Jewish spirituality. This dual nature of the titis mitzvah, as it has evolved over time, the talis godel and the talis cotton, mirrors the duality of our lives as people of faith. It beautifully encapsulates our outward persona and at the same time our inner spirit, namely the image we present to the world as well as the face we reveal only to God. By understanding these profound layers of the titis mitzvah, we can deepen our connection with our Judaism, enriching our journey on the path towards God, 
living as authentic and committed Jews in both our public and private lives. Now, let me move on to the second piece from Rabbi Sachs. It is equally profound and equally thought-provoking. Imagine this scenario. You're driving down the road, slightly over the speed limit. Suddenly, you spot a police car in your rear-view mirror. Your foot instinctively lifts from the accelerator, although you're aware it's wrong to drive over the speed limit, whether you're seen by the police or not. The imminent threat of getting caught by the police prompts an immediate change in the way you're driving. It's automatic. You know what I'm talking about. We've all been there. Interestingly, recent psychological experiments have explored the influence of being observed on our ethical behavior. How will we behave towards other people if we know we are being watched, as opposed to if we think we are not being seen? One experiment they did involved students who were given either sunglasses or clear glasses under the pretense of testing a new product line. They were also given six dollars and the option to share any of it with a stranger. By which I mean if they saw a homeless guy or a street musician, they can give them some money. Now, here's the interesting thing. Students who were wearing clear glasses donated an average of $2.71 from the $6, while those wearing sunglasses donated around $1.81. Do you know why? Just the act of feeling unobserved sunglasses due to them wearing the sunglasses decreased their generosity. The same study also found that students who are in a dimly lit room are more likely to cheat on a test than those who are in a brightly lit room. The notion of being watched or seen generates more moral behavior and more generous conduct. It's fascinating, right? Another similar study involved what was called the dictator game. Students were given $10 and the choice to share any amount with an anonymous stranger. Before the game, some of the students were briefly shown a pair of eyes on a computer screen, while others were shown a different image. Those who saw the eyes gave 55% more to the stranger than those who didn't. The eyes they saw on the screen left an image in their minds of being watched, so they gave more charity. Another study in a university hallway featured a coffee maker with an honesty box. The coffee cost money, but you could get the coffee without paying. The choice was yours. Depending on the week, a poster of watchful eyes or a picture of flowers would hang nearby. During the weeks when the watchful eyes poster was on the wall, people left an average of three times as much money as when the flowers were on the wall. And it was the same number of people drinking coffee. It's absolutely astounding. Dr. Ara Norin-Zion is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and co-director of the Center for Human Evolution, Cognition and Culture. In his book, Big Gods, How Religion Transformed Cooperation and Conflict, he concludes simply that watched people are nice people. According to him, this parallels religion's powerful influence on ethical behavior. The belief that God sees our actions and is watching us has a profound effect on how we behave. Interestingly, as belief in a personal God has declined in the West, CCTV and other surveillance have increased. So now we have that to contend with.
More interesting than everything I've told you so far is the finding that not just our beliefs, but the simple act of being reminded of our beliefs influences our behavior. Two psychologists, Brandon Randolph Seng and Michael Nielsen, conducted a phenomenal study that they published in 2009 called Opening the Doors of Perception, Priming Altered States of Consciousness Outside of Conscious Awareness. They found that participants in the study who were exposed to subliminal God-related words were less likely to cheat in a subsequent test than those who were shown neutral words. Similarly, an experiment where participants recalled the Ten Commandments resulted in less cheating compared to recalling the last ten books that they'd read. The simple act of being reminded of moral code reduced their tendency to cheat. It's, it's incredible. In another study, Christians were found to be 300% more likely to donate to online charity appeals on Sundays, which is the one day of the week when they are most likely to have reflected on their faith. A similar pattern was found among Muslims in Morocco, who were more likely to give generously to charity if they lived within the hearing range of a local minaret. Noren Zion's conclusion in his book is that religion's influence is more about the situation than the person and the phenomenon of being reminded even subconsciously of our beliefs is what shapes our behavior which brings us back to the mitzvah of tzitzis the tzitzis we wear are a constant reminder of god's commandments they prevent us from straying after our hearts and eyes and from following our sinful desires they remind us to uphold all of God's commandments and to be holy for him just their presence is enough to make us think about or rethink what we are doing there is a story in the Gemara about a man who in a moment of moral weakness decided to visit a prostitute I'm going to focus more on this story in a moment but let me just mention it here first as he begins to undress, he catches sight of his tzitzis and he's immediately reminded of his duty to God and therefore decides not to go ahead with the sin he was about to commit. Even more remarkably, his sudden change of heart leads the woman to abandon her immoral profession and convert to Judaism. We often forget the connection between religion and morality. We all possess a moral sense we all hopefully understand right from wrong, but we also have conflicting desires and we often, hopefully not too often, yield to temptation. But in the face of desire, even if no other human being can see us, the thought of God watching us could deter us from giving in to that temptation. The Gemara says in Kedushin Daf Lamad Omad Beis, Yitzro shal odom is gaber alav b'chol yoim the evil inclination of a person tries to overpower us every day to destroy us. And if it wasn't for God's help, we would be powerless to stop it. In Judaism, outward signs like titis, mezuzah and tefillin act as a constant and regular reminder on our clothes, on our homes, on our bodies, so that we can resist temptation and be conscious and aware of God at all times. Remarkably, we now have empirical evidence to support this idea, showing us 
that such reminders significantly if influence our actions. Okay, I told you I'd come back to it. So here it is. Prepare yourself for a mind-boggling tale from the Gemara Pact with unexpected twists and turns. The stories in Menachus Daf Memdalad Omad Aleph. It all begins with this guy, a young Jewish man, who becomes captivated by stories of a renowned prostitute who lives in a distant city. She charges 400 gold coins for a session and has to be paid in advance. And, you know, the young man, totally consumed by the desire to be with her, and so he slowly but surely, he puts together the money and when he has the whole amount, he sends it to her and arranges to meet with her. Then he embarks on this long journey to encounter her in person. Eventually he arrives at her house and he knocks on the door. He's so excited to meet her. His heart is pounding with anticipation. The receptionist opens the door and tells the prostitute that he's arrived. After waiting to be let in, eventually the young man is shown into her private quarters. He's never seen anything like it. The room is set with seven beds one on top of the other, and you need to climb up from one to the other to get to the top bed, which is where she was. The bottom six beds were covered in sheets embroidered with gleaming silver, and the top one is draped with sheets interwoven with the most precious metal of all, gold. Silver ladders connect each bed to the next, and the young man climbed up to the top one, and there she was, ready for him. He needs to get undressed. But suddenly, in the midst of his passion, he rips off his clothes and his tzitzis hit him in the face. Literally, his tzitzis tassels slap him around the face. He's stunned and shaken and he, and he tumbles off the bed and finds himself seated on the ground. The prostitute is obviously a bit surprised by all of this and she joins him on the floor. As both of them are sitting there, the bewildered woman asks him, what exactly happened? Why has he changed his mind? She wants to know what she did wrong. The young man shakes his head and he says to her that she's done absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, he tells her, he has never seen a more beautiful woman than her. But, he says, there is this mitzvah called titsis. And in the Torah passage that records this mitzvah, it says, not once but twice, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, I am the Lord your God. And he explains to her, what that means. It's actually a little crazy. He gives her a share on the bedroom floor. The doubling of this phrase, he says, indicates that God is both the one who will punish those who transgress his mitzvahs and he is also the one who will reward those who fulfill them. And guess what happened? The man tells the prostitute. All four titsis on my garment hit me in my face just as I was about to be with you as if they were four witnesses who will testify against me in the heavenly court. So sorry, my dear lady, the deal is off. The prostitute is not Jewish, and I'm guessing she barely understands what he's talking about, but she's very intrigued. This has never happened to her before. She insists on knowing the man's name, his place of origin, the name of his teacher, and the name of the school where he studies Torah. The guy somehow feels it's okay to give her this information, and that's exactly what he does. He writes it down and gives it to her on a piece of paper. And then he goes off back home. At this juncture, the story takes another unexpected turn. The prostitute is completely consumed 
by what has happened to her. So she decides to give up her occupation. She, she's a very wealthy woman, and she sells up, and she divides her wealth into three portions. One part is allocated to the government, taxes, and another is designated for the poor and needy, and the final portion she keeps. And she also keeps the fancy silver and gold beds that she had used in her bedroom, and she takes them with her. Where does she go? You've guessed it. She goes after this guy. She arrives at his bismedrish, and this is unbelievable. It's the yeshiva of the great Rav Chia. This young man was a student of Rav Chia. She marches up to Rav Chia and says to him, I'd like to convert to Judaism. Really? He says back to her. I imagine it's because you want to marry one of my students. Without hesitating, for a moment, she takes out the paper which the man, Rav Chia's student, had written his, on his name, he'd written his name down, and she hands it to Rav Chia. Can you imagine that scene? The base medrash must have gone dead quiet. But rather than re reject her, Rav Chia sees that she is sincere, and he allows her to convert and to marry that student who'd visited her when she was a prostitute. And now the beds that she previously used in her profession become the marital beds for her and her new husband. I told you, it's a crazy story. To gain a, a deep understanding of the story, let's turn to the Baal Shem Tov. He introduced the concept of three stages in spiritual work concerning desire. Achno'a, Havdola, and Hamtoka. Submission to God, separation from sin, and sweetening. All of these stages are in our story. Initially, the student triumphs over his desire by submitting himself to God when the titsis slap him around the face, and he returns to his studies in Rebchia's yeshiva. In the second stage of the story, we have a separation when the prostitute goes through her own transformation, inspired by the young man's remarkable ability to take on board a higher calling, she recognizes the emptiness within herself and decides to give up her previous life completely. This courageous choice leads her straight to Rebchia's Bismedrash, where she expresses her desire to convert and become Jewish and ultimately to marry Rebchia's student. The third stage is the sweetening. This unfolds when the disciple of Rebchia and the prostitute enter into a lawful union. They get married, and then the beds that were previously contaminated by sin, which were used for illicit purposes, they are now used to create a sacred space within their marriage. This narrative emphasizes the fact that desire itself is not inherently negative, even though it can lead individuals down dark paths if left unchecked. The key lies in channeling desire within a positive context, allowing it to be sweetened. The etymology of the Hebrew words for desire, yetzer, and creation, yetzira, reveal the positive potential inherent in human desire. There's more to it than that. This incredible story serves as a testament to the transformative power of desire, the importance of self-control, and the unexpected paths individuals can embark upon in their spiritual journeys. It challenges preconceived conventional notions by portraying desire as a force that, when it's harnessed and guided, can lead us to profound personal growth and the realization of higher aspirations. To provide even greater depth and meaning to the story, let's delve
for a moment into the psychological and spiritual aspects of the characters and their transformation. The young man's journey into the arms of the prostitute can be seen as a reflection of the human struggle with desire and temptation. His initial pursuit of physical pleasure represents the universal battle between the desires of the flesh and the yearning for spiritual fulfillment. Then, through his encounter with the Titus, the man experiences a profound moment of, of awakening, a glimpse into the consequences of his actions and a reminder of his spiritual commitments. This pivotal moment sparks a process of self-reflection and introspection, leading him to question his choices and embark on a path of redemption. Likewise, the prostitute's pivotal role in the story offers a profound explanation, exploration of personal transformation. Initially portrayed as a decadent figure, her encounter with Rabkhir's student, his Talmud, becomes a catalyst for self-discovery. When faced with his unwavering commitment to a higher calling, she confronts the emptiness of her own existence and is driven to seek something much more meaningful. Her decision to divide her wealth and embark on a journey of conversion reflects an inner longing for the redemption and a yearning to reconnect with her true self. Even beyond the personal narratives of the characters, the story carries broader spiritual implications. It emphasizes the profound interplay between desire, choice, and the potential for growth. Desire, when guided by conscious awareness and aligned with higher values, can serve as a transformative force. It is not the desire itself that is inherently negative, but rather the way in which it is channeled and expressed. The story invites us to reflect on our own desires, how they can be harnessed to lead us toward greater self-realization and spiritual fulfillment. Likewise, the story underscores the power of empathy and non-judgment in the process of personal transformation. Despite the prostitute's past, the rabbi's, Rebchia's, initial suspicion evolves into an understanding of her sincere intentions. This demonstrates the importance of recognizing the inherent worth and potential for change in every individual regardless of their previous experiences or society-generated labels. It challenges us to approach others with compassion and to cultivate a sense of openness that allows for growth and redemption. Everyone should be given a chance. From a modern psychological perspective, the story can be interpreted through various frameworks that shed light on the psychological processes and transformations depicted. One lens through which the story can be viewed is the concept of self-actualization. The young man's journey represents an inner struggle between his primal desires and his higher aspirations. His moment of reflection and the subsequent decision to resist temptation and adhere to his spiritual commitments exemplify a process of self-transcendence. This aligns with modern psychological theories that emphasize the importance of pursuing personal values and self-realization as key factors in achieving psychological well-being. The prostitute's transformation can be seen as a psychological journey of self-discovery and redemption. Her encounter with a student triggers an awakening, leading her to question 
her own worth and seek a more meaningful existence. This process aligns with the concepts of self-reflection, identity formation, and the capacity for change within individuals. Modern psychology recognizes the potential for personal growth and transformation, highlighting the human capacity to break free from past patterns and embrace a new sense of self. The story also touches on themes of attachment and relational dynamics. The student's strict adherence to his spiritual practice and his encounter with the titsis when they slapped him around the face reflect a sense of attachment to his religious identity. Through this attachment, he's able to navigate and overcome his desires. Similarly, the prostitute's pursuit of the student and her subsequent conversion can be seen as a journey of attachment and longing for connection. From a psychological perspective, this illustrates the fundamental human need for attachment and the potential for transformative relationships to shape our lives. And so, as we can see, the mitzvah of Titis is much more than merely a few sentences in the Torah, and certainly much more than the innocuous-looking piece of clothing that we put on or that we see others put on. It offers us profound lessons in religious belief, in spiritual growth, and in the potential we all have as long as we have created signposts and guides in our lives to keep us on the straight and narrow. This concept transcends the Titus garment in so many different ways. It stretches to the company we keep, the books we read, our hobbies, our speech, to everything that is the day-to-day -day furniture of our lives. Each aspect of our lives can act as a trigger to promote God awareness and self-improvement, or it can act as a distraction away from who we could be if only we trod the right path. Well, that's it. I will leave it here for now. Thank you so much for listening. Those of you who are on SoundCloud, and thank you so much for watching. Those of you who are on YouTube, thank you, thank you.